morning. Are you guys excited to be here in the house of the Lord? Amen. Now, allow me to quickly introduce myself for formality's sake. You know, I was, uh, my name is Victor G, as you probably know by now. I was born in a very small town in Malaysia called Sagama, Johor. I'm pretty sure there might, there, there has to be some Sagama people in Alma. Any Sagama people in Alma? Oh, there you are. Oh, nice to meet you guys, you know, Sakampong. <laughs> now, about 14 years ago, my family and I, we migrated to New Zealand. Um, we live in the city called Auckland. Uh, yes, I am married. I've got um, two kids and one wife. Uh, you know, absolutely to get the, uh, absolutely important to get the numbers right. And let me begin with a little uh, joke on the lighter side of a note. Uh, just a number of months ago, in fact, not a number of months ago, in fact, it was last year, uh, while, while I was traveling in this region and I went to a northern state uh, in Malaysia, and a show happened on a day um, in this particular church. The MC was a, an elderly person. See, one thing I've learned in, in Asia is that we, as Asians, we are particularly respectful towards the elderly people, aren't we? Yeah, so when we saw or when we see an elderly person take stage and become an MC, we automatically promote them, don't we? Now, instead of being the MC of the day, you know, we automatically, automatically call them the MCC because they get a promotion. Now, I don't know if you know what MCC stands for. Uh, it means mong cha cha huh? uh, Anyway, so, so while he's standing up here, you know, he was uh, introducing me, you know, he went along the lines of, you know, this is Pastor Victor G from New Zealand. We welcome him, yadi yadi ya, blah, blah, blah. Yes, he's married, he's got two wives and one kid. And then he went on, right? So, so while I was sitting there, you know, it never crossed my mind to correct him when I, get on, I got onto stage. So when I got on the stage, I did what I, what I do what I usually do best, which is to sing and to preach, to minister, to pray. But at the end of the service, to my dismay, I kind of felt like people were giving me the cold shoulder. It was later on that I, found, I find out why. It was simply because they actually believed I had two wives. Oh, and at the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, this pastor Hamsaba. I don't want to get to know him, you know. So ever since wherever that I go, you know, I tell the people, the leaders of the church, you know, I'm happy to do my own introduction, you know. I think it's a lot safer uh, that way. Now, prior to going to full-time ministry, I was a businessman. I ran my own business for about nine to ten years. The, the, the company was based in Malacca. And in 2010, I felt that the Lord impressed upon my heart and asked me if I would love to serve in full-time. So what happened next was this, that I went away, you know, through a season of prayer and through a series of confirmation, I came back to the Lord and I said, God, Yes, why not? I said, it is an absolute honor and privilege for me to serve you full time. So what, it, what I did next was I put a plug on my company, I call an end to my career, and I dive straight into full time ministry. And ever since, what, uh, I've, been, I've been doing one thing, which is to travel wherever the Lord leads me, uh, doing uh, simply sharing with people about this amazing, this fascinating guy called Jesus Christ. I tell them, if you have never heard about Jesus Christ, please allow me this opportunity to connect Jesus with you. I say, once you've gotten to know Jesus, man, He will blow your mind. He will come and He will change your life in ways that you will never imagine, but for the better. Now, of course, I'm also a gospel singer, so whenever an opportunity presents itself, you know, I love to interspur a couple of songs in my messages, you know, so that makes me a gospel artist, I guess. So this morning, before I dive into the Word of God, I thought it would be a polite thing to ask all of you in the congregation if you guys would love to hear me share a song before I preach. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Now, only because you insist, all right? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm kidding, all right? I came uh, prepared with a number of songs to share with you this morning. Now, the first song I love to do is, um, is this song that I wrote a number of years ago. It is called You Are Not Alone. I tend to start with this song uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, because it is a very, very loud song. Just in case for those who are still waking up, I guarantee you at the end of this song, you will be up, all right? Uh, but that's not the main purpose of this song. Uh, the main purpose of this song is the message that it carries. The title of this song is called You Are Not Alone. Now, allow me to clarify, this is not Michael Jackson's You Are Not Alone. You know, for those who are MJ fans out there, you know, I know he's got a song called You Are Not Alone. Now, I believe, on my, my own humble personal opinion, that my version is the better version. I'm not dissing on Michael Jackson. I, oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Michael Jackson is one of the greatest artists. I'm not dissing on his, his, his song or whatsoever, but I'm talking in terms of the message that he carries. You know? Michael Jackson's song talks about how if you are lonely, if you're struggling in life, you have uh, friendship, you have companionship in your family, your, your neighbors and your, your uh, relatives and so on. But with my song, I take it up a next notch in that we are all reminded whatever that we're going through in life, we have a friend in God. 
How amazing is that? To have to be connected with people, someone from the high places, and it's pretty awesome. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty awesome privilege, isn't it? Now, when I wrote this song, it was based loosely on two scriptures. Number one, it was based on 1 Peter 5, 7. It tells us, when you cast your cares on him, when you cast your anxieties on him, he will care for you. So right off the bat, we see from this scripture that we believe in a God that cares for us. How, how heartwarming is that fact? And then the second verse that reflects this, this uh, 1 Peter 5, 7 comes from an Old Testament scripture in Psalms 55, verse 22 that says, when you cast your worries on him, he will sustain you. Wow. I love this particular sentence because this particular verse because it has helped us understand God better. Because sometimes every now and then I do bump into some Christians who are misled, you know, to believe that the minute we become a Christian, it seems like all our problems will fade away. It seems like we, Christians are immune to problems. I think that's a hoax. I think that's a, uh, a myth that needs to be debunked. You know, the thing about Christianity is this. The minute we become a Christian, it's not that we become immune to problem, but in the midst of problem and challenges and tribulations and trials, God is with us through all that. That is a promise that God gives. Now, I'm not denying for a second that all that the God that we believe in does miracle. I mean, I've been a Christian for over 30 years now. Let me tell you, I've had my fair share of amazing things I've experienced from God. Amazing. That, 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 that is an occasion. That is a story for another occasion. But one thing we need to be reminded is this, that in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, God looks at us and He says, you know what, you know, folks, let us all be reminded, let you guys be reminded that your ways are not my ways, that your thoughts are my thoughts. He said, take a look up into the heavens, as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So God is perhaps telling us that maybe our three-pound brain sometimes perhaps is incapable of fully comprehending this, the, the, all this infinite wisdom from this all-knowing God. It is possible. So whenever our prayers are not answered according to our liking, it is by no means that we use that as a way to gauge the validity and kindness of God. God is not defined by our own experience, our own opinion. God is described according to His words. And in His words, He says, I care for you, and if you are willing to trust me, I am there to sustain you. So today, sitting in this hall right now, everybody, I believe, will have their own fair share of challenges in life. You, know, you might be a businessman or woman that you, perhaps your business is not doing quite well in the last couple of months, or perhaps that your relationship is on the rocks, or that your health may be failing you. Whatever challenges that you're going through right now, honestly, I do not know. But what I do know is this, that we all believe in a God that cares for us. So long as we are willing to open our heart to trust Him, he has our back. Is that cool? So without further ado, let me share with you this song called You Are Not Alone. God bless you. Thank you. down with you, always wondering what would happen, oh, freaking out, I'm losing it, always looking for an answer, take a pause and you would dream and dare to take a stand, take a pause and know that this is not how it should end, never mind what took place in the past, is dead and gone, very soft to make you strong, in God you choose to believe. Once again I find a will to face my trouble No more running and no more hiding Today my God has told me that I'm not alone The clouds are breaking up, the storm has settled Once again I find a will to face my trouble No more running and no more hiding Today my God has told me that I'm not alone 
And you would dream and dare to take a stand Take a pause and know that this is not how we should end Never mind what took place in the past is dating God Barriers off to make you strong In God you choose to believe The clouds are breaking up The storm has settled Once again I find a will to face my troubles No more running and no more hiding Today my God has told me that I'm not alone The clouds are breaking up, the storm has settled Once again I find the will to face my troubles No more running and no more hiding Today my God has told me that I'm not alone I saw beyond his mouth, and reach out to me His glorious presence shining down on me I saw beyond his cross his hand reach out to me I felt his glorious presence shining down on me The clouds are breaking up, the storm has settled Once again I find a will to face my troubles No and no more hiding Today my God has told me that I'm not alone The clouds are breaking up The storm has settled Once again I find a will to face my troubles No more running and no more hiding Today my God has told me that I'm not alone One more time Clouds are breaking up The storm has settled Once again I find a will to face my troubles No Amen, you are not alone, and all glory be to God. Would you guys like to hear more songs? Yes, you have to wait, okay? <laughs> Got to get into the Word of God this morning. What I'd love to share with you this morning is a topic that most of us, if not all of us, would be, um, that we would be comfortable or not, we would be able to relate with. I would love to share with you about this person called Jesus Christ. See, in this hall right now, I believe there are two groups of people. The first group of people, obviously, are the Christians, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Which also means that whatever that we do in our life, from coming to church to, to serving on stage, off stage, in the car park, in counseling, or in, uh, in ushering, whatever it may be, everything hinges on this person called Jesus Christ. Which means, should our understanding of Jesus deepens, or that our experience of Him increases, it would translate into a stronger faith. But should our understanding, understanding or experience of Jesus somewhat be limited or superficial or shallow, it could render our faith weak. That should a new theology or a new worldview comes along, or perhaps through a bad patch of experience, some people would come to an extent where they would just ditch their faith. Paul was warning young Tim in the book of Timothy. He said, hey, Tim, please guard your faith. Be careful. Don't be like those, those two brothers, Hermanias and Alexander, who shipwrecked their faith. So sometimes we've got to make a conscious effort uh, and an intentional effort put in to strengthen our faith as we continue to be closer to the Lord and to be more Christ-like. So I pray that my message would have that effect on you today, that at the end of this sermon that you would have felt inspired perhaps, encouraged and blessed, that you would have left this place that little bit more motivated, enthusiastic and more passionate to preach the gospel to the community that you are in. Amen. The second group of people in this hall, I believe, are those that are not Christians. Uh, perhaps you are one of those that has been searching for a God to believe in, to worship. At best, you are one of those that, that has been sitting on the fence. You know, in Chinese, there is a saying that goes, you know, Xin jiu hao, we are tai mi xin. Sun jiu hao la, mo tai mai sun la. 
translated into English is some, somewhere along the lines of whatever that you do in life, do in moderation. Now, of course, I see some truth in that statement. Absolutely, right? In life, there are many things that ought to be done in moderation. For example, eating. I mean, if you're hungry, but if you decide to go on a food binge, you try to down 20 hamburgers, you know, you're going to end up with a tummy ache for sure. Or that perhaps you've been working hard for the last three weeks and you're so sleep deprived and you're thinking, you know what, the next weekend is coming up, the long weekend, I'm going to sleep for 100 hours. Again, nobody can guarantee at the end of 100 hours when you wake up, you're not going to get a, a hangover or a migraine and so on. So it, it is true that many things in life are not, it ought to be done in moderation. But on the flip side, there are certain things in life that ought not be done in moderation. Love is one of them. Now, just a quick show of hands if you are married and, and that you are a husband. Hey, quite a few of you. Now, let me suggest this, all right? Say that your wife is not here today and you go home tonight and you share with your wife. You say, I was at church today, amazing sermon, blah, blah, blah. I've learned many things, honey, or sweetheart or darling, whatever you call your wife. You say, one of the things I've learned this morning from church is this, that in life, in order to live a healthy, balanced life, I ought to do things in moderation, yeah? So from today onwards, honey, you know I love you, right? But I'm going to love you in moderation. This is when you receive a five-fold apostolic ministry back home. I don't even know what I mean, five-fold ministry. Yeah. The reception will be frosty. Yeah. So love is one of those things that ought not be done in moderation. See, our love for Christ, for God, falls in the same category. This is a God that came all the way from heaven to lay down his life, and before he died for our sins, he was tortured and persecuted. The horrendous pain that he went through the least that we could do on our part is to pledge to him our full allegiance. Sometimes I cannot imagine after what God has done for us, and if our response to God is, you know what, God, you are amazing, you've done great things for me, but you know what, I'm just going to sit on the fence on this one in terms of our relationship. You know, that sort of decision will do a disservice to what Christ has done for us. If anything, it is downright disrespectful. What Christ, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, has done, has, has done for us Nothing short of full dedication to him can, can, uh, sh is appropriate. So this morning, again, I pray with all my heart that my message would have given you sufficient reasons to take that plunge. That you'll be able at the end of the service, knowing that if you should you make a decision today to embrace Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior once, once and for all, it will be your best de decision in life. Amen. I pray that your heart be open today. What I love about Christianity is this, that this is an open-door policy. What I do here, you know, is out of my heart, out of love for everybody here because I've received this love from Christ that I hope you too get to receive him. No one should be forced or coerced into believing Jesus Christ. But I hope through my sharing here today that you, that you will see with your very own eyes that if, if there is any gods out there to follow, Jesus Christ will have to be the one. Amen. When we talk about Jesus Christ... There are many ways to find out more about Jesus Christ. In today's generation, you know, everybody goes to the internet. You go to Google, you go to Wikipedia, SOP, right? Of course, you, if you are a little bit old school, perhaps you would like to go to the library or the bookstore to pick up a hard copy for those who love, you know, the scent of a hard copy book. Now, a more direct source, of course, would be to go to the Bible, especially the New Testament. Now, for those, if you are a non-Christian here today, the New Testament are books that were written after Jesus Christ was born. And then you would go to the first four books in the New Testament known as the Gospels, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today, you know what? I would love to share with you about Jesus Christ from a slightly different angle. You might have heard this expression before that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Anybody? Yeah, I see some heads nodding, right? This, this expression was coined by early church, one of our early church fathers, uh, St. Augustine. See, St. Augustine was a brilliant man, absolutely brilliant mind. And it is so well said. It's so true that should we go digging into the Old Testament today, we will find actually a lot of scriptures that were written hundreds of years before Christ was born talking about this Messiah that will turn up. So much so that the Jewish community began collating these scriptures and gave it a category. All the scriptures that were pertaining to Jesus Christ or the Messiah was called the Messianic prophecies. Now today, if I could give you a quick definition of what a Messianic prophecy is, it is this. Now, this is the title of today, if you need a title for your sermon. 
messianic prophecy. See, a definition of mess messianic prophecy is this. These are prophecies that were given by God either through a human being or an angel about a person that will come to this world to save this world from the punishment of sin and to restore the relationship between human humanity and God that was broken by sin. And let me repeat that again. Messianic prophecies are prophecies that were given by God either through a human being or an angel about a person that will come to this world to save this world from the punishment of sin and to restore the relationship between humanity and God that was broken by sin. Now, this person that will come to this world to save us was given a very specific name. He was called the Messiah. The Messiah in the Old Testament is, it means the anointed one. Now, it really depends on how much time I have later today. Should I have sufficient time, I would love to revisit this term, the anointed one, because this is phenomenal. What you were about to find out about the anointed one will blow your mind. I guarantee you that, but we'll see how time goes. But before I unpack a little bit more based on this title, and I think it is apt that I sing you or share with you another song. This song that I wrote was quite recent. It is called The Messiah, a song that reminds all of us that this God that we believe in is no ordinary man or just a prophet, a rabbi, or a teacher. He is above all that. In fact, he is in a league of his own, incomparable, unparalleled. This is the God that we all believe in. And his name is called Jesus Christ, The Messiah. I hope you guys will be blessed and encouraged by this psalm. Hope you like it. Thank you. The Messiah. Have you never come across this name? 10,000 million years is still the same He walked on water and by man see That's not the only cool thing to his fame I hope this precious name is more than a word Think it through before you say it again He walked on water and he did not sing he knows your name before life begins Messiah, the chosen one Messiah, the anointed one Messiah, to you I run The sweetest name above all other names This is the greatest name you ever know Every living being will tell you so Every knee will bow and tongue confess The King of kings and the Lord of lords Messiah, the chosen one Messiah, the anointed one Messiah, to you I run The sweetest name above all other names Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Lead all ones to Him belong, they are weak but He is strong. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Lead all ones to Him belong, they are weak. Chosen one, Messiah, the anointed one, Messiah, to you I run, the sweetest name above all other names, the sweetest name above all Amen. The Messiah, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Now, I was talking about prophecies earlier on, right? Now, there's one thing you got to know about a prophecy. It is this. You see, a prophecy is not a forecast. 
Now, when do we use a forecast? Weather forecast, for example, right? When you see the dark clouds looming, you make a forecast. You say it's gonna rain, of course. But little do you know, or did you expect that a gust of wind will come and takes the cloud away, and there goes your rain? The forecast is never accurate or never a hundred percent accurate. Neither is a prophecy a prediction. When do we use a uh, the echo still on though? Uh, when do we use a prediction? Now, a good place uh, for uh, a good analogy for this would be uh, when we watch uh, football. See, the English Premier League has just recently started about two to three months ago, right? Now, this is this is uh, classic. Whenever the the season starts, you know, uh, everybody is making prediction. Now, any football fans here in Amherst that you watch a lot of football? Yeah, Kwame, yes, is a Liverpool fan, right? Uh, you never walk alone, okay? In this case, you probably, you are alone. Okay, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, everybody makes prediction, don't we? Every season when it starts, the standard uh, protocol would be that the big five or big six, one of them will lift the trophy. You know, uh, teams like uh, Manchester United or City, Chelsea, uh, Arsenal, maybe Liverpool, I don't know, and so on, right? And, but you know what? Two years ago, for those who don't watch football, this was what happened. About two years ago, I believe, there was this uh, little-known club called Leicester City. Nobody know much about them. So minute and obscure that the odds of them winning was 5,000 to 1. 5,000 to 1. That number is just just to put there, just to feel the numbers, you know. Just to dare to play the games, you know. They're not going to win. But you got to understand, you see, the English Premier League is not a one-off thing. It's not that they, these teams come together and play. And perhaps on a particular day where the good teams played a really lousy match and the lousy team played a great match and it becomes an upset. That can happen sometimes from time to time. But you know what? This is not a one-off match. This is a season of 38 matches played week in, week out. They got to slog it out for about eight to nine months. So it's not a one-off thing. But you know what? To everybody's surprise, Leicester City lifted the trophy. Against all odds, they did that. There goes your prediction. Unpredictable. People always say the ball is round, right? It can bounce anywhere. You never know. So we have established one thing. A prophecy is not a forecast. It is not a prediction. But rather, it is a foretelling. Whatever that is spoken by God will come to pass and must come to pass. Ezekiel 12, 25 is a good place to look at them. God says, I will declare what I want to declare, and when I do declare it, I will bring it to pass swiftly. So whatever that is spoken by God will come to pass and must come to pass. And there's another term that I've recently come across, a rather interesting term. It's called post-addiction. I don't know how many of you have heard this term before, but this is how post-addiction goes. Post-addiction is when an event or an occurrence has taken place. It is only then we go digging into some old literature trying to find anything that correlates with that incident. And once we do locate some of them, what we do next is that we piggyback those literature onto the occurrence and we stand aside and say, aha, see, I told you so. In Chinese, we call it a maho power. English means bluffing. Before the event happens, nobody is committal. Everybody very quiet. But the minute it happens, so many people will just come on and say, Aha, see, see, I told you, I told you, I told you, right? Don't we, have all, don't we all have friends like that? Right? It's only when it happens that you say, Ah, see, I told you so, uh, you know. A prophecy ain't like that. A prophecy is given hundreds of years before it is fulfilled. What makes Jesus interesting and amazing is this. The 2,000 years ago when Christ came to this world, in Matthew 3, we were told that he was baptized. Amazing day. And in Matthew 4, he was led to the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. On his return, the inauguration of his public ministry in Matthew chapter 5, right off the bat, Jesus made a bold declaration. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I do not come to abolish the book of the law and the book of the prophets. Instead, I've come to fulfill them. There is another verse in Luke 24, verse 44 that says, and in fact, this, was, uh, this statement was made by Jesus. He says that everything that is written about me in the book of the law, in the book of the prophets, and in the book of Psalms, I have come to fulfill them and to fulfill every single one of them. Look at this scripture. I'm going to break it into two parts for you just briefly. 
Notice that Jesus referred to three segments of the Old Testament, the book of the law, the book of the prophets, and the book of Psalms, right? Now, at first glance, you're thinking that these are three random sections. But in context, for a Jewish listener, they would know what Jesus was claiming. Jesus wasn't just claiming three sections of the Old Testament. Jesus was referring to the entire Old Testament. If we can have the next slide, please. Now, I don't have time to break it down for you because this will take a little while. I'm running out of time right now, but this is what I will say. That when Jesus said the book of the law, the book of the prophets, and the book of Psalms, he was referring to the Jewish Bible known as a Tanakh. The Tanakh, if you, the word has these three letters that makes up the acronym of TNK, which means Torah, Navi'im, and Ketovim. So whenever you say the Tanakh, they know it's the Jewish Bible. T is, is known as Torah, the book of the law, which, which are the five books that were written by Moses, laws that were given by God for this Israel called nation, divided into three categories, uh, civil law, uh, ceremonial law, and moral laws. Then the second category called Navi'im. Now this is very similar to our Malay word called Nabi. We call Nabi Muhammad, right? Don't we? We learned it. Nabi means prophet. Same thing in Hebrew, but the only difference is in Hebrew, sometimes the B can be pronounced as a V, so it's called Navi. Navi'im talks about the book of the prophets. There are 17 of those divided into 12 and 5, major prophets and minor prophets. And the last one is, uh, is the, the category known as Ketovim. Ketovim is known as the book of the writings that consists of historical books and wisdom literature. So, in short, when Jesus was referring to the TNK, he's telling everybody that was listening to him, hey folks, from A to Z in the Old Testament, I've come to fulfill them and to fulfill every single one of them, which leads me to my second point, every single one of them. See, Jesus did not turn up, took 30 years to study the Tanakh and say, wow, that's quite a handful of prophecies. You know, if, I were try, if, if I were to try to fulfill them, Wow, it's, it's not easy. So maybe I just want to play it safe and perhaps I should just declare that I'm here to fulfill most of them or a majority of them. No, no, that is not the case. See, what is different about Jesus Christ was this. He did not come to try to become the description. Instead, the descriptions is him. There's no need for him to say I tried to fulfill some of them. So it makes perfect sense for Jesus to declare I've come to fulfill Every single one of them. Which also means, man, the stakes are raised. See, this is a guy that we have come to know that can do so many divine, miraculous things in his lifetime. He is the guy that is known to be able to calm the storm. He can turn water into wine. He can make the blind see. The deaf can hear. The lame can walk. He can even raise the dead. Wow. As if that is not enough to prove his divinity, he put it aside and he said, you know, everything I'm going to, Put it on the line. And what is the line? It is this. Everything. Which also means should Jesus fulfill 99% of all those prophecies and leave out one meager prophecy somehow that he missed. You know what would happen? That would render Jesus as a failure. True. Even 99%, he's still a failure. Because he made a commitment. He, he said 100%. He didn't say 99%. Not only will Jesus be known as a failure, Jesus will be known as a liar. He promised it. He never made it. But the amazing thing about Jesus is this. When we look back in history, we're so glad and we have so much confidence in this God that we believe in. He's done it all. Of course, I got to clarify when it comes to the prophecy, there are two types of prophecies. One talks about his first coming and the other one talks about his second coming. Now, Jesus hasn't returned yet, has he? Can I just check? No, right? If he has, we'll be in trouble. We are the one that got left behind. Just checking, all right? So he hasn't come back yet, all right? So whatever that pertains to his first coming... He has come back. He came 2,000 years ago and he has fulfilled every single one of them. But let me tell you one thing. Should anybody here today, if you are able to find the one thing that Jesus did not fulfill, oh man, oh boy, you're going to be an overnight sensation. You know why? Because you'll be known as the person that brought down the Christian empire. That you're going to be more famous than Lady Gaga and Justin Bieber put together. Seriously, right? But let me give you a heads up that you won't be the first to try and you won't be the last to fail. The Bible is so amazing that it is, this is an open book. Anybody and everybody can pick it up and challenge it. Unlike some holy books out there, of course, I'm not going to name names. There's some religions out there where the holy book is a closed book. Even though if you can find some discrepancy, certain things that contradicts itself, you cannot challenge it. You're not allowed to challenge it. Not in the Christian world. This book, this Bible, the Word of God has stood the test of time. This is where our faith lies. 
And we thank God that He has stood a test of time that many over the centuries have come and gone. That you name it, people like engineers or architects or archaeologists, historians, philosophers, professors, everybody has had a go in trying to debunk the Bible. You know what? None has succeeded. Amen. Aren't you glad that this is not just a com compilation of fairy tales or folk tales that has been passed on from, from um, old times, but rather it is the very Word of God Himself. Amen. Today we're going to look at some examples, all right? Depending on how time goes. Okay, about 20 minutes, see how. Okay, because Christmas is around the corner, usually I don't include this prophecy, but I thought I should mention it in passing. Micah 5.2 is a really interesting prophecy. Now, if you can have the next slide, please. A quick backdrop. This is about 700 plus years before Christ was born. This is an 8th century uh, prophet. So it's about 700 plus years B.C. before Christ was born. God told this particular prophet called Micah. And he said, Micah, when the Messiah turns up, tell the world that he's going to be born in this obscure little town called Bethlehem. In fact, in the scripture, it says Bethlehem is the smallest of the clan of Judah. Now, of course, if you are taking a stab in the dark, if you're trying to make a prediction that someone important is going to turn up one day, uh, logically, you would choose a big town right? Perhaps they would have gone, it's, it's safer to have chosen Jerusalem or Antioch or Damascus or Rome. The chances are way higher that someone prominent will come from these towns. But no, no, see, God is not limited by all these numbers. God knew exactly what's going to unfold, and God knew when Jesus came, it's, even though it's a small town, but it is that town that the Messiah will come from. And for the last 2,000 years, we have been reminding ourselves, we have been celebrating the fact that our Messiah came from Bethlehem. Every year during Christmas, don't we sing this song? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? It's a reminder that Christ, when He came, He fulfilled it. This is one of the many prophecies that He has accomplished in His lifetime. Now, this is a, just a, a, a quick mention, a mention in passing because I want to focus on another one which I'm going to fast forward right up to the end. I've talked about his birthplace. I, I love to talk about what he did towards the end of his ministry. But before I spend the next 10 to 15 minutes to, to unpack the particular important messianic prophecy, I guess you know, it's, it's time for another song to share with you guys because it's a Christmas period and you know, I thought I should throw in and join the bandwagon and throw in a, a carol song that we can all enjoy together. Is that cool? Yes. Amen. Now, I love this song. It's one of my favorite carols, uh, Christmas songs. It's called, Oh, Holy Night, because that night was, in fact, absolutely holy. A night that when God himself took on human form and, became, and to become part of us, to identify with us, to understand how it feels to be human, and then laid down his life for us. Now, I'm going to sing the, uh, the newer version just to let the media guys know if you can prepare for that. If you're ready, uh, go for it. Uh, ho oh, Holy Night, if you know this song, I'm sure you do know, uh, please feel free to sing along. Okay? God bless you. Thank you. The stars are brightly shining It is the night of our dear Savior's birth Long lay the world in sin and error pining Till He appeared and the soul fell is worth a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees was born, oh, night, 
Christ was born. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul fell his worth a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder and glorious more fall on your knees now hear the angels voices oh night divine oh night oh night when cry next prophecy comes from Psalms 22. This is one of those famous messianic prophecies that were identified hundreds of years before Christ was born. A quick backdrop. Psalms 22 was written around the 10th century BC, so about a thousand years before Christ was born, written by King David himself. And this psalm was also known as the lament of an innocent sufferer. You guys know what a lament is, right? A lament is a deep cry of anguish. So as you study Psalms 22, it does depict the kind of agony that King David was going through in his lifetime because he was hotly pursued by his enemies. But a certain part of these Psalms, because the nature of this Psalm is a prophecy, so certain parts didn't quite fit King David in that he was no perfect sufferer or was he an innocent sufferer we know so well in king david's lifetime uh, there was a point where he was being a little bit naughty was he not there was some point in his life that king david saw certain things that he wasn't supposed to see in fact he orchestrated the death of another person and then he went on to commit adultery so yes king david suffered but he was no innocent sufferer it wasn't until a thousand years later when Christ turned up, when Christ was hung on the cross, crucified for our sins, did he fulfill this prophecy and that this prophecy fitted Jesus like a glove. So what I'm going to do next is I want to unpack just three verses. It's a very long psalm. Again, we don't have all the time to go through every single one of them. I just pick up a few that I feel is a little bit crucial to what I have to share tonight. So, uh, number, verse 16 begins by telling us, A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now quickly, piercing of hands and feet talk alludes to crucifixion. Pretty clear, pretty obvious, right? But you know what is amazing about this prophecy? Was that when this prophecy was given, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. Crucifixion was invented around the 5th century BC by the Roman soldiers. Of course, some people would argue that it was the Persians who invented them. The Roman soldiers perfected them. But if you go with either stand, both came hundreds of years after this prophecy was given. But God knew so well that when Jesus Christ came to this world, the very method that humans are going to use to, cru uh, to kill him is through crucifixion. Therefore, hence it was prophesied through crucifixion. Then in verse 17, it goes on to tell us a little bit in, more, in, in detail the type of pain and suffering that the Messiah would go through. In 17, it says, I can count on my bones. People stare and gloat at me. What does that mean I can count and stare uh, at my bones? So you got to understand in context. Back in those days, before a, a, a criminal, criminal or a convict is being, being uh, crucified, they had to go through a process known as public flogging. 
Now, for those who have seen Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion, perhaps, right? You would know how that looks like. Where these criminals are tied down and then they are being uh, whipped. Now, it's been told that um, should you fall under the Jewish jury... Can we use piano instead of strings, please? You don't mind? Yeah. Um, it's been foretold. Uh, it's been told, it's been, it's been mentioned historically that should you fall under the Roman's jurisdiction, Sorry, I was distracted. Should you fall under the Jewish jurisdiction? Uh, it's a standard 39 lashes. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25 tells us Paul was whipped under the Jewish jurisdiction 40 minus one time on five different occasions. But the thing is about Jesus was this. We don't know how many times Jesus was whipped because he did not fall under the Jewish jurisdiction. He fought under the Roman's jurisdiction. When it comes to the Roman's jurisdiction, it's really interesting that there's no limit. The limit is to the, heart, to the Romans, to the soldiers who does the whipping to his heart's content. That he will whip you on and on and on until he feels that, okay, I think that's enough for you. Now, it's interesting to note again why 39 times under the Jewish jurisdiction. Simply because after, that, after having done it hundreds of times, they managed to make an observation. In that, the usual breaking point of a, a regular block is about 40 times. Anybody who is lashed or whipped over 40 times ends up usually dying through excessive bleeding or too much pain, whichever that comes first. So what they've done was this. You know what? They say, we don't want to kill them. We want to preserve their life barely. So let's call it a 39 times. That's how the 39 came about. But when you fall under the... Oh, of course, there's another reason. Should the person who does the whipping accidentally kills the, the uh, prisoner, they themselves will be charged with manslaughter. So they want to do their job responsibly, but they don't want to kill uh, the prisoner. So therefore, they stop at 39. What about Jesus? See... Historically, it has also been recorded that should one of those people at the receiving end of all these lashes happens to be a gladiator. You guys know a gladiator? You've watched Russell Crowe's movie, Gladiator, all those big, muscly guys. Should it be one of those gladiators that uh, um, are the ones that are being whipped? It's been told that because of their build and their muscles, they are able to last about 100 lashes because they're strong. Makes sense, right? Now, I know for sure, you know, that Jesus was no Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? But, I, I, but I'm also very sure that Jesus was a healthy bloke. Right? He never went to McDonald's. You know, everywhere that he went, he walked. He ate organic food. So if anything, he was a builder, a carpenter. If anything, he should be able to last about 60, 70 lashes maybe. I'm making an estimation here. But you know what? I'm going to be really conservative here today. I'm going to say that Jesus perhaps was only whipped 30 times. Unlikely. That perhaps for some random reasons, the Roman soldiers, while they were whipping Jesus, they, they noticed, that, oh, this is the, the, the good kid on the block. You know, he's been helping people. He's it's nice. You know, he's, he's one of the uh, better guys around, you know. Why don't we cut in some slack and, and, and just give him a hefty discount, you know, and just call it at 30 times. But you know what? Unlikely. Roman soldiers are known for their brutality. They're heartless. They could not care less. They would just go on with their heart's content. But say, for conservativeness, for, for that reason, we call it at 30. Now, it's also been told that the whips that they use consist of different types of whips. Some say three strands, some say five, some say seven strands. Again, let me take the middle ground. Say they took a five-strand whip. And how these whips are constructed was this. That anything that latches, that pierces, that cuts, that, that splice, they will attach along all these strands. And at the end of these strands are usually something heavy, like a mutton bone or a lead ball. Now, as you can imagine with me, something heavy at the, dangling at the end of these whips and because of the sheer weight of this, uh, this, uh, the, the, the whip it carries, the every lashes goes on to the back of a prisoner. Whatever that is meant to cut will cut. Whatever that is meant to slice will slice. It will do its job. But that is just the first part. Whatever that goes down has to come back up again. So as you can imagine with me, that every whip that comes back up again, chunk of flesh will fly off. Blood will be splattered everywhere. This Roman soldier goes to work spanking clean in his armor. He goes home drenched in blood with flesh all over his armor, everywhere. That is how gory it is. That was what Jesus went through. And when Jesus was being whipped, almost, not just half dead, probably almost dead, right? There's a distance between where Jesus had to travel to the place of crucifixion. In fact, recently, you know, I've came across this song called Via Dolorosa. How many of you have heard this song before? Via Dolorosa? You know, it's a beautiful song. You know why? Because it talks about the path that Jesus had to endure on the way to crucifixion. You're playing it right now, aren't you? If you haven't heard this song, you know, Google it up, YouTube it, beautiful song. About eight to 900 meters that Jesus had to travel on foot, half dead, um, perhaps almost dead. And when he finally got to the place, oh, of course, during this path of suffering, people didn't cheer him on. No one helped him. Oh, of course, there was one guy, but majority did one thing. They mocked at him, they glowed at him, they spat at him, they slapped him, they kicked him, they punched him. They grabbed his beard, they yanked it. Not only that, they found his staff, his rod. They, they picked it up, they whacked his head over and over again. People stare and glow at me. I can count all my bones. 
Because I was mentioning earlier on, I missed out a little bit. 30 lashes multiplied by 5 strands is 150 lashes, right? Conservatively. At the end of 150 lashes, you know what? I believe there's not a lot of flesh, let alone skin, that is left behind. That's what is mentioned. I can count all my bones. That is what he means. And in verse 18, he says, when finally Jesus got to the place of crucifixion, what happened there? According to the prophecy, they divide my garment and they cast off my clothing. In John chapter 19, verse 26, historically, it was mentioned that when Jesus got to the place of crucifixion, there were four soldiers. They saw the garment of Jesus Christ and said, you know what? Let's take it. Let's divide into four because there were four of us. So they divided the garment quarterly. And when they saw the clothing of Jesus Christ because it was seamless, they said, this one let us not rip. Okay? Because once we rip it, it becomes less of a value, of a lesser value. So let's cast lot for it. The person who wins the casting, the lot will grab uh, the clothing. 1,000 years in advance, this was, uh, this was pro uh, prophesied. I don't know about you. You think this is coincidental? You think this is by random chance? Now perhaps, I'm going to cut you some slack. I'm going to, in all fairness, that if you're one of those that are thinking, maybe this is just by random chance. But by a long shot, that's Jesus somehow just managed to fulfill a few of them. If that is your thinking, what is my response? It's simple. Should there be just a handful of such prophecy in the Old Testament? I may give it to you. I may even concur and say that you're right. I think you're absolutely right and fair to say that perhaps by a long shot, it is possible. But you know what? I'm glad to announce to you. If you look at the entire Old Testament, it's not just a handful of such prophecies. In fact, there are over, listen well, 300 plus such prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus came and fulfilled every single one of them. Quickly mentioning the next one. If we can have the next slide, please. Isaiah 53. Again, I don't have time to unpack it for you, but take note of that. Verse 5, he says, He was wounded or pierced for our transgression. This is 8th century BC. Different author, different place, different location. He chose the same word. That this Messiah would be pierced for our transgression before crucifixion was even invented yet. See, there are many ways a person can die, right? You can stab a person, you can burn, you can drown, you can poison, you can behave, you can pierce, you can impale, so on. No. Different place, different time, different author, they all choose that one word. Why? Because it came from the same source. God foresaw. It is the piercing that my Messiah will suffer. Then it goes on in verse 12. This is where the beautiful thing about this verse, this prophecy is. It lies in verse 12. I left out the first few words in verse 12 because in the, at the front of the sentence is a pronoun. Based on the Jewish culture, should they do something to bear their sins or make atonement for their sins, it's always in the form of an animal sacrifice. Right? That's how they make atonement for their sins. Animal, they take a cattle, they sacrifice it, usually a bull, a cattle, a, a cow, or a, 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 a lamb, and so on. But never, mind you, never in the form of a human being. Never. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, God says, For you to sacrifice a human being is an abomination to me. Don't you dare go sacrifice a human being. So in the Jewish culture, they know, they know so well, to make atonement, never sacrifice a human being. But you know what's really intriguing was this. That when prophet Isaiah made a prophecy, he didn't choose an it for the pronoun. If you study verse 12, he says, it is a he that bore the sins of many. And you can, you can almost imagine when the Jewish culture read that, they'll be up in arms. They're thinking, what is happening? You nuts, Isaiah, you crazy. We don't do that kind of stuff here. We don't kill human beings. But little did they know, Prophet Isaiah wasn't talking about any, any regular atonement. He was talking about the perfect atonement. That Christ himself, in other words, took the form uh, took the place of an animal on our behalf. This is where I love about my God. I love about my God in the fact that He come and save us in His very own expense. He's not just a God that looks from a distance and says, you know what, you're on your own. I've created you, you guys sort it out. No. I've saved you in my expense to prove, to demonstrate my love for you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while we are still sinners, 2,000 years ago, Christ has already turned up to demonstrate His love. Sometimes talk is cheap, ain't it? It's easy to say, I love you, you love me, I love you, you love me, right? You see couples, they come together, young couples especially, I love you till I die. Three weeks later, they're gone, separate. Talk is cheap. I mean, Christ could do that. Say, I love you, my world. He could do it. No. He said it and He demonstrated it. So today, wherever that I go, you know, when I tell people about Jesus Christ, I tell it with so much passion in my heart because I know I'm presenting a God that has proven His love for us. Not only has Jesus proven His love for us by dying on the cross for us, the amazing part is after He died, He rose again. Wow. 
I cannot imagine wherever that I go telling people about this amazing God. At the end, at the climax of my sermon, I say, you know what? Today, if you want to visit Jesus, you can go to his tomb. You can go to his graveyard and you pray to him there. No, that would be such a turn off, would it not? You'd be like, what? After all this building up, you see your God is dead? No. The Christian God, Jesus Christ, is still alive. Amen. Every year we celebrate that during Easter. Do we not? See, remember, the day that Jesus died was on a Friday. Hey? And he rose again on a Sunday. On the day that he died on Friday, what do we call that day again? Good Friday. Have you noticed how ironic it is to call a day that someone died good? You try to attend somebody's funeral today. You walk into the funeral and say, hey, good day, huh? Slap you a good day. Son. But how ironic it is in the Christian world when the day that Jesus died, we call it good. Why? Because we know that he did not remain dead. He rose again. Every year we celebrate his resurrection. And not only that, we are reminded that he will return. So I'm going to close right now with one last verse perhaps. I'm running out of time. In John chapter 14, he says, He's going to go to a place to prepare. He's going to go to his father's place to prepare a room for every single one of us. So if you think about it, if this Jesus is able to fulfill all these prophecies, if this very same Jesus is willing to die on the cross for your sins and my sins, if this Jesus, when he came face to face with death, he came out on top, how many can claim victory over death? None. But Jesus can. He said, when I'm facing death, no problem. Let's, let's take it on. No problem. He took death on and he came out on top. This is the very same Jesus that made a promise that He will come back for every single one of us, especially for those who call Him His God or her God, uh, to, the ones that call Jesus your own God. Those are the ones that Jesus will come back and take you with Him to heaven. So the question that beckons as I close right now is this. It's not if Jesus is coming back, that is out of the question, but rather when He comes back, are you ready? You're sitting here right now. You know why I want to believe it is not coincidental that you're here today. I mean, you can be out there today doing something else. But the fact that you're here today, I believe God wants you to hear this. That if you belong to the group of people that have been searching for a God, that you want to pledge a full allegiance to a religion. In fact, beyond a religion. In Christianity, it's beyond a religion. It is a relationship with a loving God. If that is you, you know what? Today will be the opportunity that will be given to you to respond to the invitation. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to invite everybody to close your eyes and bow your head as I close with a word of prayer. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to make an invitation quickly to anybody here to, this morning. Should you want to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Having heard how amazing He is, you know, I want to encourage you to respond shortly. And through your response, I would love to pray for you. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for this morning that we get to study your word and be reminded that you are an amazing God that loves us. Not only that, that you have saved us, that you have given us a promise that whosoever believes in you and call Jesus their Lord and Savior shall receive eternal life. Thank you, Father, for that promise. And we claim it today. Right now, Lord, I want to pray for anybody here who is not a Christian yet. Or perhaps he, is, he or she has been sitting on the fence, not sure if he wants or she wants to make the plunge. But God, I pray that they will make that decision today to embrace Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They are only Lord and Savior. So sitting here right now, if there's anybody, that if you want to make a decision today to call Jesus your God, it will give me an absolute uh, privilege and pleasure to be praying for you. But in order for me to know who you are, all I ask of you to do is simply this, to raise your hand, look at me, I will acknowledge you, you can put your hand down, and then I'm going to proceed to pray for you. That's all I'm going to do. If that is you, within one minute right now, if you want to receive Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior, I would love to pray for you. Now will be the time for me to see your hand. Anybody here this morning? Anybody, quickly. I'm going to wait for a little while. I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Anybody here today? Upstairs, downstairs, I'm looking at you. Today, if you want to make a decision to embrace Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior, you say, Victor, Pastor Victor, please pray for me. I've been searching for years right now. Today, I've heard this message. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to have eternal life in heaven. I want to end my search. Today, I want to end my search in Christ Jesus. If that is you, all I ask of you to do is to raise your hand. Let me see your hand. I'd love to pray for you. Anybody, come on quickly. Come on, quickly. Be bold. Be courageous. I guarantee you, you will not regret it. If that is you, let me tell you, this will be by far the best decision that you can ever make in this lifetime. And mind you, we don't get a second chance. We all only get to live once. So I, if I were you, i say, take this, seize the moment, take this opportunity and call Jesus your God. If that is you, come on, 30 more seconds, I'm going to wrap this up. Anybody? Anybody? Young or old, male or female, God loves you the same. 
You are made for a reason. You're not on this planet by random chance or by mistake. God placed you here for a purpose. And you can only find meaning and purpose in Christ Jesus because He is the one that made you. If that is you, come on, 50 more seconds. I'd love to pray for you. Even for one person. It's, it's all the difference. If you if you are willing to raise your hand, it's between life and death for you, my friend. If that is you, let me pray for you. Quickly, come on. One last call. Anybody. You're not a Christian. You want to become a Christian. I would love to pray for you. Anybody. Okay, let me close right now. That's fine. God, I want to commit this meeting to you. Thank you, Father, for those who came today. But I pray, Father, should there be anybody here today who is not a Christian yet? As I pray, as a soul, the seeds that are being sowed in your hearts, in your soul, may it take time and in due time allow it to germinate and they'll be willing to open their heart to receive you, Father. Today, Lord, I commit this wonderful church into your hands, O oh Lord. Empower the leaders, empower the pastors. Pastor Vincent doing an amazing job here. But God, I pray, it's going to grow from strength to strength, Father. And it's going to enlarge his tent in this community, in this region in this in this country father there are many more souls who come to know you and be blessed father in all this father we ask and pray in the most precious name of our lord jesus christ and every, and everybody said amen all glory be to god thank you for your time god bless you have a wonderful wonderful day ahead thank you